Sunday, um, they, uh, they had my friend Steve's memorial service out in uh, Dallas, Texas. And Chuck Swindoll was a pastor. Chuck said that um, he was sharing about Steve. Steve Farrar wrote the book Point Man. A lot of books, a lot of ministry over the years. He was a faithful guy. And Chuck made the statement that um, a tree is best measured after it is down. I mean, and he and he, then he said, you know, our brother Steve is down, but really he's up. He said because he's with God, but he made a huge impact, huge impact. And. One of the things that struck me about that service was Stu Weber, who spoke uh, at the service. Before he ever spoke, he said, you know, one of the things that was Steve's passion, in fact, it was his overriding passion, was his passion for God's Word. And so as we start this, his, one of his grandchildren is bringing his Bible up that we're going to read from today. So one of the grandchildren brought up Steve's preaching Bible. I've seen that Bible many times and put it on the pulpit in a church packed with people that had been influenced by this guy who finished faithful. And over the last few weeks, we've been working through Acts 14, looking at what it means to finish faithful, the marks of an effective minister of the gospel. We're all ministers of the gospel. We're all priests. We talked about that. And we've been looking at these marks, and the first of which was to walk with perseverance. As Paul and Barnabas left, commissioned by the church in Antioch to go take the gospel westward, they left not knowing what would be in front of them. But during that time, traveling the way they traveled, you were always at risk of loss of life robbers, other things that could happen that could basically wipe you out, but they walked with perseverance. They also spoke with His passion, the passion of the Father, the passion of the Son, the passion of the Spirit. They were Spirit-energized. They were Spirit-filled. And when they spoke, it says they spoke in, they articulated clearly the Gospel. That's what it means. They didn't compromise. They they didn't use lofty speech. Not words of wisdom. Probably wouldn't even think they were good speakers if you heard them today. They wouldn't tickle your fancy. Wouldn't make you laugh. Wouldn't put it on the bottom shelf. Wouldn't make it easy to go down. They just spoke the truth. But they spoke with His passion. The other thing they did was they served as His priests. They knew wherever they went, they represented God. They were His servants. Do you think that way about yourself? Or do you think it's only the people who are the paid professionals? Because a lot of times that's what we think. But they served as His priests back in Exodus chapter 19 and 1 Peter 2.9. It says we are His priests. We're a royal priesthood. And they walked by the Spirit. There were times the Spirit said to go, times the Spirit said to stay. And so we saw those first four just as they left Antioch of Syria, went to Cyprus, went through uh, Pamphylia, went into Perga, went through the, you know, the Tarsus Mountains to Antioch of Pisidia where they got kicked out. They were persistent. They spoke with His passion. They served as His priests. And they went through and they walked by His Spirit. What, James? Where is the Tarsus? The Tarsus Mountains are over in southern Turkey. And so, last week, we looked at when they got kicked out of Antioch of um, Pisidia, they went to Konya. Modern day Konya. It was Iconium then. And as they were in Iconium, uh, we looked at four more characteristics. What it means... I'm sorry. Um... We looked at, um, they got kicked out of Iconium, then they went to Lystra. And it was last week we looked at Lystra where they got, uh, they basically (laughs) got stoned out of there. Paul got stoned, remember, last week? And I'm not talking about stoned from drinking or smoking dope. I'm talking about he literally got popped in the head with big old rocks. 
But we saw as we looked at that text in Matthew or Acts 14, 8 to 20, that the, it just continued. Another characteristic was to see with his eyes, God's eyes. And Paul did that. Remember, it says that he looked intently at the man, saw he had faith. You can't see that if you're not seeing with his eyes. We also saw he lived for his glory. He healed that Gentile pagan last week, and the city wanted to make him a god. They wanted to make him um, Paul. They wanted to make Hermes and Barnabas. They wanted to make Zeus. And we saw, no, they, they tore their robes because they, they said, we don't, we don't live for our glory. We live for God's glory. And you live for his glory. That was another mark. Seeing with his eyes, living for his glory. But there was another one. They shared his message. Notice they contextualized. They told these people not to go back to the God of Abraham. They didn't tell them to go to the God of Jacob. The God of Moses. They didn't even mention Moses. They said what? They started with creation. They said turn from these vain, empty things you worship to a living God. They contextualized the message, but they shared His message. They didn't compromise. They didn't say, you know, you can worship this and syncretize it with Christianity like we do a lot today. Oh, you can worship that and still... You can love Jesus, but still do whatever you want. And they syncretized the message, but that's not what they did. And remember, Paul said there's three things that are insufficient to find truth. One, you. Two, me. Three, idols. None of those things are going to help you find God. Only God's going to help you find God. The Greek and Roman empires fell because what they tried to do was create standards based on finite standards. Somebody finite said, this is a good idea, let's do it. Finite can't dictate infinite standards. And so, we saw that they didn't compromise on the message and then we saw finally they resisted His enemies. That's another mark. To resist. Do you resist? You know, I went through SEER school when I was in the Marine Corps. SEER school is... Did anybody here ever go through a SEER school? You know what it is? I know what it is. Uh, what is it? Survive, survival, escape, resist, evade. Yeah. Survival, escape, resist, resist. What does it mean to resist? It means you fight. You, you have a will that says, I don't want this to happen. I don't want you to break me. I, do you have that kind of mentality with Satan? Because a lot of times we rationalize and go, well, I've already thought it. I might as well do it. Have you ever had that thought? Yes or no? Yes. That's how He gets us. We don't resist. But that was a mark of the enemy. Paul said one time when he wrote, he said, I despaired even of life. But he didn't take his life because he resisted. He probably wanted to. He was that depressed, that discouraged. I know people that have been like that, but they fought. They resisted. You resist. That's a mark. Well, today we're going to look at three final marks as we kind of close out chapter 14. As Paul and Barnabas go back, they actually retrace their steps through every city, including the ones that kicked them out. Including the ones that stoned them. Now, I want you to think about how bold that would be to go back into a city, not to share the Gospel with people, but to go back and follow up the people who had already responded. I know people that will lay their life on the line to go tell the Gospel to people that have never heard. But to go back to a city where they've already heard, oh, we've already been there. They've heard it. They can do the work there. But not Paul and Barnabas. No, they went back to the same cities. They retraced their steps. One of the words that came up in my friend's memorial service was the word remember. Remember. Probably one of the most mentioned words in the Bible. Remember. 
Remember what I've done for you and walk in my commandments, God says. Remember how I led you out of Egypt. Remember when I covered you with the wings of an eagle. Remember, remember, remember. Colossians 4 5 says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. A lot of you guys in this room are my age or older. If you live to be 70, you would spend around three years of your 70 year span, if you put all the time you spent together, you'd spend about three years of that. In education, your typical, normal, average person. You spend about three years reading something, books. You'd spend about four years in conversation with people, just talking. If you took all the conversations you had over a 70-year lifespan, it'd be about four years. You'd spend about five years in a car, in an airplane, on a train, or on a bus. Isn't that crazy? Five years in transportation. Mike, you identify with that because you travel a lot, don't you? I live more than that. Yeah. And all these are plus or minus a little bit, but they're pretty good averages. Six years in eating, some more than others. <laughs> Eight years in entertainment. Eight years in entertainment. Fourteen years working. Uh, oh gosh, this, this was before the iPhone. I was about to say entertainment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. But th- yeah, this, this would have been probably, um, I think about 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. 14 years working. Some kind of job. 23 years sleeping. 23 years sleep. If you gave God five minutes every morning and five minutes every night to pray and read the Bible, that's 10 minutes a day, and went to church every Sunday of that whole entire time, you know how much you would have out of the 70 years? years. 11 months. Eleven months. Eleven months. It's interesting when you think about it like that, isn't it? When you think what we spend our time doing. I mean, at the time, you don't think about it, but it adds up. It adds up. Or it doesn't add up. So when Paul writes, walk in wisdom, make the best use of your time, are we doing that? Are we doing that? Because to finish faithful, it's going to be hard to finish faithful if you're not spending time with Him in His Word. True. Well, in this text today, we're going to look at 21 through 28. Huh? Uh, Colossians 4 5. In this text today, we're looking at Acts 14, 21 through 28. We're going to finish up. We're going to look at three more characteristics. So this will bring to 11 the total number. Starting back with the first one. Walk what? With perseverance. Remember that? Two, speak with His passion. Three, serve as His priest. Four, walk by His Spirit. Five, see with His eyes. See with His eyes. Seven, live for His glory. Eight, share his message. And nine, resist his enemies. Well, I'm sorry, eight, resist his enemies. I'm sorry, I I miscounted. Number nine is follow up with his sheep. Follow up with his sheep. Follow up. That's what Paul does. We're going to see him do that and what it says about that in the text. So if you're going to finish faithful, it's not just to... Listen, we're not called to make Christians because we can't, right? We can't. We're called to what? Make disciples. 
Make disciples. That's why Paul went back. That's why he went back to check on everybody. But it's not just following up with his sheep. We're also called to minister by His grace. Minister by His grace. In other words, the the ministry that we do as His priest, we have to do by His grace. And I don't think we really grasp that sometimes. As men especially. And then finally, when we've done all those things, if we've implemented those things as we've sought to follow Him, one of the last things, and we do it along the way, but it's what we see Paul and Barnabas do when they complete their journey after their first trip. We witness to His mighty works. If anybody spent any time around me at all, have you heard me witness about the works of God in my life? About the works of God in my kids' life? About the works of God in other people's lives that I encounter? We witness to His mighty works. That's what they do. They get back, guys, and they have the first missions conference ever. Now what's amazing about them, at one of my last board meeting, one of the guys we were talking about mission conferences and missionaries and one of my guys said, sometimes you got to put your thumb over a missionary to see if he moves. Just to make sure he's real, not some plastic placard. You know, see, is that guy moving? Is he actually alive? <laughs> Unfortunately, that's the reputation a lot of missionaries have. And we're going to see, that's not what Paul and Barnabas displayed. And when they got back and reported... They didn't go back and do a missions conference to raise money, which is what a lot of missions conferences do today. They reported on the work of God. They reported back to the sending church. Hey, this is what happened. It was amazing. So they witnessed to His mighty work. So let's read the text. And we'll look at each one of these. Follow up with His sheep. Minister by His grace and witness to His works. All right. Starting in verse 21. When they had preached the gospel to that city. What city? It's the one that was previously mentioned. Derby. They went from Lystra to Derby, And all we get out of this is one sentence. The whole ministry of Derby is summed up in one verse. Isn't that crazy? But it's a good verse. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra, to Iconium, and Antioch. And that's Antioch of Pisidia. Strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch. And that's, that Antioch is Antioch of Syria, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles, and they remained no little time with the disciples. This is the word of the Lord. These guys finished faithful. You know, when they left, they had no idea if they would even make it back alive. I mean, the journey through the Tarsus Mountains alone would have been enough to kill them. If it wasn't the robbers, it would be the terrain. It would be just the, the ruggedness of the terrain. I'm convinced Paul was talking about that over in 2 Corinthians um, 11. How hard it was. But notice when they went, they went to where they were going. They got to Derby, and then they turned around and said, we've got to go back and check on all our believers. The sheep that are back there. They followed up. Why? Because the Christian life is a beginning. It's not a destination. I don't know about you, but I grew up, when I heard the Gospel, I heard it through the ears of somebody who saw it 
or, or who heard it as a destination. Okay, I'm in. I'm on the team. I made it. That was not the way the early church communicated and not what those people were taught. It was the beginning of the journey. And so now Paul and Barnabas are going back and they're helping these people move from a polytheistic belief system that allows them to do a lot of things that go against God's Word. They taught them biblical ethics. ethics Like, you know what? One man married to one wife. That's a big deal for the culture. Listen, every time you feel the hormones flowing, you can't just go hop in a sack with somebody. Biblical purity, sexual purity. That's new for them. You've got to understand, these were pagans. These were, these were Greek and Romans. They, they, they were into some really bad stuff. And they could do whatever they wanted to do. It was... It's kind of like the 60s, right? You could do whatever. Woodstock, all over, but it was in Rome. It was in Greece. It was in Alexandria. And so Paul and Barnabas are helping them learn new theology, new ideology, be part of a new community. And they're also helping them prepare for attacks from the enemy. You know what one of the first attacks doctrinally was back then it was the first heresy really of the, the early church anybody circumcision. yeah faith plus circumcision it wasn't just you got to be circumcised alone you can believe in jesus but it was a syncretism of that believing in jesus and jewish law jesus plus something else jesus plus Anything is a perverted gospel. And he was teaching them his faith alone. Faith in Jesus alone. Nothing you do is going to make God love you anymore. You don't have to try to please Him and appease Him to earn His favor. Jesus secured that for you. Wait a minute. You know, what do you, what do you mean? Well, justification. Have you ever heard of that? No. We don't know what that is. So he would teach them. What about imputation? Have you ever heard of imputation? Christ imputes His righteousness to you? Well, never heard of that before. Well, He teaches them. What about incarnation? The fact that He was God and He became a man. He was 100% God and 100% man. No, we just heard you speaking about the Creator wanting a relationship, telling us there was a way that we could have that and we wanted that. And so we trained Him and taught Him. What about the Trinity? You mean, wait a minute, how can they be three in one? I don't know. <laughs> it blows my mind too, but let's, let's try to work through that. They just went back to help them with some of these concepts. And they taught them that the Word, the Bible, was the source of doctrine and truth. Now that was a big deal. You know why? Because most of these pagans would not have had the Torah or the Scriptures. So they helped them understand the Torah. They said it started back with Adam and Eve and they took them Old Testament Bible class through Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, then the prophets. Oh wow, this is making a lot of sense. So they would teach them why? To guard the faith. To guard the faith. If you've got, they, they were instructed. Notice what it says in verse 22. This is the first thing about follow up is instruction. It says, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to what? Continue in the faith. The, when you see the faith, it's talking about the gospel faith. It's called several things in Scripture. When Jude talks about it, he says, contend earnestly for what? The faith. He's talking about the Gospel. The Gospel that Jesus and Jesus alone saves. When Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, Timothy, guard the good deposit that's made in you. He's talking about the faith. When Titus 2 talks about sound doctrine, 
He's talking about the faith in Jesus. So where, how do you guard the good deposit? How do you contend earnestly? What is it that helps you to be able to stay true to the faith? The Word. Colossians, Paul writes, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You've got to let the Word be a part of your diet. The Word has to be valuable to you. In 1 John 2, when John's writing to those believers, he says, I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the Word of God abides in you. That's how you guard the faith. That's how you contend for the faith. Recently, a very, very, very well-known megachurch, mega-conference speaker who said some things I haven't agreed with in the past, but he still has this massive influence in the evangelical community said that church unity is a lot more important than doctrine. Church unity is a lot more important than doctrine. This was at a church leadership conference with 8,000 ministry leaders. It's the same guy who said we need to unhitch from the Old Testament. Yeah. Let me ask you guys, uh, uh, listen, we're, we're all flawed people, right? No, no, I have no question about it. Any teacher that stands up anywhere is a flawed human being. But when you start making statements that continue to form patterns of going away from this or saying unity is more important than this, the doctrine... I think Paul would have had a hard time with that. What separates him from a Unitarian? Yeah. So, instruction. That's why Paul went back. Guys, that's one of... I I got three things here under follow-up. One is instruction. When you follow up with a new believer, you want to take them and start teaching some of those things I mentioned. Teach them that there's only faith in Christ. There's Christ plus nothing. It's faith alone. Teach them biblical ethics. Teach them biblical purity. Teach them. Do you you guys know where to go in the Bible to find a verse on purity? Every one of us ought to be able to say 1 Thessalonians 4. That's where you go. That's one of the best. This is the will of God that you what? Anybody? Does anybody know it? Yes, thank you, Van. Thank you. First Thessalonians. That's, we, we've got to know those things. How are we going to disciple people if we don't know? How are we going to know if we don't read? See, we can't read and brain dump stuff. We need to make notes. When we read stuff and we go, wow, it says this is the will of God. This is not just Doug standing up there saying, hey, you got to be pure. This is God's will. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Amen. That's what he says. So we've got to let the Word dwell in us richly. Instruction is one part of follow-up we see. Another is exhortation or encouragement. The, the, the Word means really to come alongside and encourage. And what it is in verse 22, it says, strengthening the souls of the disciples Encouraging them to what? Continue in the faith. And saying that what? Through rich bank accounts and great health, we will enter the kingdom. Is that what it says? That's what a lot of people say on TV. You just don't have faith, brother. If you believe in Jesus, your bank account's going to be taken care of. If you have faith, brother, you ain't got to worry about that cancer. If you have faith, it's, it's all about your faith, and it's really not about the faith that Jesus offers. 
Because He never promised us freedom from pain. In fact, it says when Paul followed up, he talked about the normalcy of suffering in the Christian life. Yeah. Flip over to Matthew 10 real quick. Matthew 10. This is when Jesus is kind of commissioning the disciples. Kind of laying it out for them a little bit. It says He called His twelve disciples and He gave them authority over unclean spirits. So it starts off, you're thinking, wow, He's given us authority. This is an awesome thing, right? Pop down to verse 16. What chapter is this? Chapter 10. Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Have you guys ever seen a wolf tear up a sheep? Or any animal for that matter? It is a nasty sight. Go on YouTube sometime and put wolves attack. It's it's brutal. And he says, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Oh, but he's not talking about us. He's just talking to the disciples. That, that really doesn't apply to us today. Because Benny Hinn says otherwise, right? Joel Osteen, they, 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 they said we don't have to worry about that. In fact, we're going to have our best life now, right? Wrong. That, that's the message that's communicated through a lot of these people. And so people are disillusioned when they, they go, wait a minute, I've done all this stuff. I had a guy this week. I've done all the right things. I read my Bible. I give. I do all this stuff. And it just doesn't seem to work out. What? Your plan or God's plan? He goes on to say, listen, you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. I don't think they're going to drag you up there to give you the Presidential Medal of Freedom. I think they're dragging you up there, putting you on trial is what he's talking about. When they deliver you over, he says, don't be anxious how you're to speak, what you're to say, for what you're to say will be given to you in that hour. Brother will deliver brother over to death. The father is child. Children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you go, how in the world could that happen? I was getting ready for this and Lori called called me over. She said, Doug, did you see this? And I go, what? She says, this is wild. So this 20-year-old kid who's an avowed socialist, which shouldn't surprise us with what we got going on in university systems today, um, said, you know, his dad said, I'm going up to Washington because I think the election was stolen from Trump. And so this kid calls the FBI and says his dad's going up there. The FBI contacts the, the kid and goes to meet with him while the father's up in Washington. Convinces the kid to wear a wire when his dad comes back. His dad comes back, never went into the Capitol, never did anything to destroy property or be any place he shouldn't have been, didn't monetarily facilitate anything that would help that up there. He just went up there to be at the rally. Came back to his home, The kid comes in wearing a wire and stokes him, provokes him. Yes, as they can do and as he was told to do. Provoked his dad to make some very incriminating statements about the election, about what should happen, what shouldn't have happened, and then gets arrested by the FBI. They barge into his home. This is a very respectable guy. This is not, a, this is not a, a guy out there. They bust into his house with a battering ram and the SWAT team to arrest this guy. Send him up to the gulag in D.C. And a guy told me this morning, because he recognized the story, because I haven't read it. I'm just, my wife and I, she's telling me about it. 
And this guy confirmed it this morning and said, yeah, he's either on trial right now or is about to be on trial and is looking at 60 years in federal prison. But the guy didn't do anything. He thought something. He articulated something to his son. And I'm, th- I'm sitting here as I'm watching this, I'm going, how could a father turn over his son or a son turn over the father? How could that be? But we're seeing it play out. I, I know people that wouldn't let their grandkids see their grandparents because they differed on whether they should be vaccinated or not. So I can see the, the thing. And it doesn't matter which side of the equation you're on on that. The point is that I can see these kind of things happening. Are we willing to be those people that are going to say, you know what, I'm going to speak the truth about Jesus. I don't care. I don't care about cancel culture. I don't care what they do to me. I'm going to do what it says here in Matthew 10 when he says, have no fear of them. It says, don't fear the one who can kill the body, but rather fear him who can destroy the soul and the body in hell. Verse 28. He says, even the hairs on your head are numbered. Fear not. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Because he said, I know where the sparrows are. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father in heaven. Whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Verse 38, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Paul was teaching these things to these men to encourage them. To stay, to have a wartime mentality. Let me ask you a question. Do you think the people over in Ukraine are worried about whether Starbucks is going to be open tomorrow or not? Do you think they're worried? Man, McDonald's pulled out. We're not going to have any more cheeseburgers. Those things, that, that, you don't think about those things in the middle of a war. They're losing everything. They know that they have, a, they have to have a wartime mentality. If you flip on the news, listen to the conversations, what they're talking about. Now I want you to go back one month, or maybe let's go two months back. Those same people, those same people, Man, I wonder what time Starbucks is open today. You know? Man, prices at McDonald's are going up. They don't care about those things today. Why? They have a wartime mentality. See, many people in America think 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 we're beyond what's happening there. Oh, it won't happen here. Well, we got to have a wartime mentality because I'm telling you, we're, we're, we're not the church. I'm speaking of the church. I'm not speaking about Joe Blow out there who doesn't call himself a Christian. I'm talking about people that would consider themselves a church. We don't think of wartime. We think a cruise ship. We think Christianity is a cruise ship. Prayer is just an intercom. We call God for some room service instead of it being a wartime mentality. And Paul is going back and saying, it's going to be hard, guys. You've got to have a wartime mentality. And notice, then he goes into organization, verse 23. It says he appointed, appointed elders. It might say ordained in your translation. Appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting. Now keep in mind, guys, they had only been around for a year. 
These believers are less than a year old. So that's why they had to pray and fast. Who are we going to leave in charge? Okay, let's see. Jimmy, you're older and more experienced and you love the Lord apparently. It looks real for you. We're going to pray and fast. Yeah, Jimmy's one. Um, uh, you know, let's go with Jerry. Jerry's one. Lord, is he the right guy? And so as they pray and fast, they come up with a plurality. Notice it's plural. Elders to lead the church. It was not one guy going, you know what? Man, um, Pete, he's a good speaker. He, he really, man, he's funny when he communicates. He's a good teacher. Let's get him. He's going to be our leader. And we're all going to rally around him. That's not how they did it. They picked elders to lead. The elders had to teach And they relied on God. They commended them to the grace of God. Pastors and elders to teach and care for the sheep in the name of the Lord. And notice that if you, if you have absolute power in one guy, it's going to corrupt. I don't care how good he is. I don't care how good he is. It's going to corrupt, yeah. Um, and this, these areas were areas where no synagogues were, right? So did they have or how are they teaching? Well, that's a great question, but I think if they had churches and he was encouraging them to do that, that they would probably help get them scrolls. More than likely, there was somebody there who had some scrolls because who came out of Lystra? You guys know? Bible trivia? No. Timothy? Yeah, Timothy. And what did it say Timothy's mother and grandmother taught him from his youth? The Scriptures. So they got him somewhere. And so, but notice, guys, elders administrate. I don't know if anybody in here is an elder at a church, but you don't rule the church. Elders don't rule they administrate. Christ rules the church. Pastors don't rule the church. Christ rules the church. He has under-shepherds that serve Him, but He ultimately is the ruler. It's His church. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, lay out qualifications for an elder. And uh, when you start deviating from that, my friend Steve went up to Ohio. He was asked to go up there or Iowa or Ohio, I can't remember. And um, they were having a church split over whether women should be elders or not. And he said, well, let's look at the Bible. Yeah, we've seen that. Um, but what do you think? And he said, what I think doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is what's in the Word. Well, we kind of feel like we've moved to a more progressive view of that. And he said, well, you might as well ordain homosexuals too because that'll be next. Because once you start deviating, you're opening up a Pandora's box. And I promise you, you go back and you look at the churches that ordained women elders and they were some of the first ones to embrace homosexuals as pastors and priests. So, he organized. So, those were the three things he did in follow-up. He instructed, he exhorted, and he organized. But then we see in verse 24 to 26 that he not only followed up with his sheep, he ministered by his grace. Notice what it says in verse 24. as Well, 20, um, 26. And from there they sailed to Antioch. So he just gives us how they their path back where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. They were commended. God gives us the grace needed for what He calls us to. And we need grace. It's hard. Ministry's hard. It's hard on your family. It's hard. I mean, it's just hard to be a priest of the Most High God. It's hard to have a wartime mentality. And you need grace. I, I got an email from a guy this morning. Man, I've really been struggling. I've I've been struggling and I texted him back and I was struck with this verse. A righteous man falls six times, but he gets up how many? Seven. In other words, he doesn't quit. 
He persists. He keeps fighting. Ephesians, Paul wrote the Ephesian church in verse uh, 20 of chapter 3 and said, Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. It's His power in us. You can't do anything on your strength. When you're pushing up against a wall because you're trying to do it in your own strength, the first thing you need to do is repent and say, Lord, I am so sorry. I tried to do this in my own flesh. I can't do that. I'm so sorry. We've got to minister by His grace. That's with our wives. That's with our children. That's at our workplace. We minister by His grace. And when we ask for it, He will give it. He loves us. He wants us to be needy. And sometimes when we think we're not, He shows us how needy we really are. Well, we finish up with 14 and verses 27-28 with the first missions conference, like I said. They go back and it says what? They declared. When they arrived, they gathered the church. This was the church that commissioned them to go. They declared all that God had done what? What does it say? All that God had done with them in cooperation with God. They worked. Guys, when you go out to serve the Most High God, you go out with Him. You work with Him. And that's what they said. And they declared it. We witness to the mighty works that He does in our life. We witness to how He has helped us through things. And they said how He opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Wait just a second, James. Jesus, the the disciples, Paul, throughout their ministry, they encountered blind people, deaf people, lame people. Who had to open a door for those people to see? Who had to open a door for those people to hear? For those lame people to walk? God did, right? God had to be the one. And that's what they're saying. Listen, guys, God has opened a door to the Gentiles. We didn't come up with this. Erwin Lutzer was a pastor up in Chicago. He taught a homiletics class. Homiletics is when you teach people how to go through the Bible and basically take a text and turn it into a message for people that will be memorable in a way that it instructs them. So one of his things is he got all of his class in a bus took him out to a cemetery. He did this every year. He would take him out to a cemetery and he would get him out, out of the bus and one by one, they each had to preach to the graves. And they had to give an altar call to the graves. Every year he did that with his homiletics class. And he would take him out so they'd do that. And he says... After, obviously, nobody came forward. Otherwise, they wouldn't have heard about that. <laughs> but after they preached and gave an altar call, he said, you have as much a chance of bringing one of these people out of the grave responding to your altar call as you do someone hard-hearted toward God. He said, it's up to God to open the door. He has to do it. You can preach all day long and you should preach with passion. But understand, when somebody responds, it's because God opens a door. It's not them. You're not convincing them. God is pulling the veil off their eyes. And I'll tell you something. John Calvin did not invent that. I have people tell me, you're one of those Calvinists. No, I'm biblical. When it says God opened the door, He opened the door. What can a dead person do? Can they do anything? Have you guys ever seen a dead person do anything? They can't, if they're dead, they can't do anything. Paul says we were dead in our trespasses. God breathed life into us and drew Him to Himself. So, 
Just like the blind man, He can open your eyes. Just like the deaf man, He can open our ears. Just like the lame man, He can heal us to walk with God. It's a God thing. God does it. Sheep don't seek shepherds. The shepherds have to go get the sheep. They bring them into the pen. They bring them into the fold. So as we think about this culmination of their first missionary journey, remember these final marks of effective ministry. Follow-up is really key. It's important. And part of follow-up is instruction, encouragement, and administration. Helping people get plugged in and have an organism there. The church is an organism. And you can't have an organism without organization, right? You can't. you got chaos. They ministered by His grace and then they witnessed to His works. That's what He calls us to do too. So, Father, thank You for the reminder of how You worked through Paul and Barnabas and how You want to work through us to follow up with Your sheep that are out there that need encouragement. They need instruction. They need organization. And I pray for each one of us that whatever role You call us to play, that Lord, we would see with Your eyes. We would live for Your glory. That Lord, we would be Your men serving as priests. Walking with persistence. Let us finish faithful. Lord, thank You. Thank You for what You did through Paul and Barnabas how You demonstrated Your grace through them, and thank You what You've done in our life. May we never forget the grace You've already shown us just to be here today. And Lord, may we testify to, to Your mighty works to those around us. Let us not be ashamed of our relationship with You or what You've done in our life. And any time we feel led, Lord, to take the glory that belongs to You. Let us, like Paul and Barnabas, remember that picture of them tearing their clothes so we live for Your glory. We love You. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Next week, we won't meet here. If you show up here, you'll be here by yourself. Maybe, unless somebody else decides to go.